Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. You know, a while back I had the opportunity to go on the radio program with Bill Arnold on Faith Radio. We had a conversation about the reliability of Scripture, so I thought I would share that with you so you could learn some helpful information about why we can trust the reliability of our Bibles. I think every believer should, at some point in their Christian journey, do a very in-depth study on how beautifully preserved scriptures are. So, obviously, if God has the, uh, if he wrote the the book, he has the ability to preserve it, and boy, did he do an amazing job. My guest, uh, Clayton Craby, created ReasonableTheology.org to help us make theology uh, nice and accessible for everyday, for the everyday Christian, which would be most of us. So, Clay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Yeah. Now, I did this uh, this study on my own uh, probably 20 years ago, and I have to say it was one of the most fascinating studies out there, the reliability of the Scriptures. It is fascinating. It's also really, really important because everything in our faith traces back its authority to Scripture. And so this is a question that comes up from believers. It's a question that comes up from those seeking answers about Christianity, and also it comes up from skeptics all the time as well. When you uh, consider the fact that the Bible is the biggest selling book of all time, um, there would be a lot of people wanting to take shots at it, that it's um, it's not based in, it has no reliability, and you, the literary critics, what have they said about it? And um, we've got some really good news for those skeptics out there, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And and the reliability of Scripture is attacked because of the claims that Scripture makes about itself, the claims it makes about sin and salvation and mankind and God. And and really, one of the last uh, sins that we have in our culture is the idea that you have the right answer. And of course, Scripture has the right answer. So it gets attacked quite a bit. But there are many excellent evidences available that point to just how reliable Scripture is. Mm-hmm. You did a really nice job of putting together uh, four thoughts on the reliability of Scripture, which would probably just give us just enough time to cover them today. Yeah, excellent. And and the reason I put these together uh, is because those that have an interest in this have probably done some reading, probably have found a lot of great resources that that give facts and numbers and archaeological finds and all these things that are are fascinating and great and good. But then you find yourself in a conversation and it all goes out the window. You can't recall any of it. So what I propose is that people can kind of commit to memory four general categories of why we can trust the Bible they'll be better off when they enter in those conversations with someone and try and defend the Bible's reliability. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about uh, uh, literature and antiquity, and let's talk about uh, the, the second most reliable book in all of antiquity would be uh, Homer's Iliad, right? Yeah, and, and when we talk about that, the question is really drilling down to the numbers 
of manuscripts we have available. Mm -hmm. We're talking about ancient documents here. They weren't writing in Microsoft Word. They're writing on sheep and goat skinned and, and pressed papyrus leaves. These are things that deteriorate quickly. So the fact of the matter is we don't have uh, the original copy of the letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians or John's Gospel. What we have is copies, and these copies are called manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about how well-attested Scripture is, we have far and away the most manuscript evidence for the New Testament is far beyond anything else that comes even close to that in ancient documents. Yeah, not to mention how hard it was to keep the goats standing still. That's right. They always run off, and you got your quill pen too sharp, they're going to bolt. You got it. So even if you take the existing—there's no original documents left of anything. There's only copies of copies. But of the of the home of the Iliad, six hundred copies that are left in existence, you have to sometimes compare those copies against each other to say, are they consistent among each other? And the corruption rate is so high between the existing six hundred copies that um, you can't you can't even um, uh, come up with a a, a reasonable conclusion as to. Um, the, the original intention of the author. There, I spit that up. And that's that's the point that we try and make when we talk about this uh, idea that the Bible has thousands of manuscripts available. And the reason that matters is because when you're dealing with copies of copies, what you can do is compare this copy from this geographical location and from this time period and compare it to this copy from a different geographical location and a time period separated by... 50, 100, 1,000 years, mm -hmm. when you compare those with the New Testament, what we see is of the 6,000 about manuscripts that we have, they're 99.5% identical. And that is unheard of in terms of the study of ancient documents. And the things that are different, are there's never been any issue, theological issue, that's been a difference from one manuscript to another. We're talking things like uh, the spelling of a town, mm -hmm. um, slips of a pen, copyist areas, things like that. Nothing that would call into question the veracity of the documents themselves. Right, right. And literary critics, um, even if they're atheists, will say this document is without peer in terms of its of its reliability. Oh, absolutely. There, there's very—you um, will find skeptics who, of course, will attack that uh, proposition— However, many even secular scholars recognize that because we have this scientific analysis of these manuscripts, the document has been preserved, and that's when you start to get into these criticisms of, yes, it's been preserved, but they weren't written until hundreds of years later, and what they did was they recorded myth, and then that myth was well-preserved, and that, that brings us to a whole different issue when defending the reliability of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, Clay, let's talk a little bit about how archaeology uh, can support the uh, biblical record. Yeah, and when you're talking about archaeology, one thing to keep in mind is archaeology doesn't ever really prove anything. Archaeology can't prove a certain biblical event. Archaeology can't prove a certain battle took place in the Civil War. What it does is lends evidence to support what we see recorded elsewhere, such as in the Bible, such as in uh, old history, do historical documents about the Civil War. What archaeology can do is, is lend credibility to the claims of Scripture, sometimes overwhelming evidence, overwhelming mm -hmm. credibility, where that is almost a foregone conclusion. What we see is 
time and again, archaeology has supported the biblical record, even in instances where the scholarly views of the day was that a certain town, a certain ruler or magistrate, or even a certain tribe of people did not exist. What we found is over time, archaeology has actually come forward and supported the biblical record, and we have no instances where the opposite has happened, where archaeology has come and disproven or uh, shown us evidence that leans us away from the biblical record. Mm -hmm. It's never disproved uh, a biblical event, and it never will. (laughs) No, and and of course, we, we take that by faith, and our faith is in the truth of the claims of Scripture, but at the same time, we recognize that God's Word was brought about, and His revelation was brought about in God's world. And so we we would expect to see evidence for that in the world. And we have archaeological evidence. Just in the last few months, they unearthed a signet ring where they used to kind of press into seals of Pontius Pilate, uh, a figure who was um, in many scholarly circles denied to have even existed. And, And since that time, we found inscriptions with his name on them. We found this ring with his name on it. So Another example of where archaeology has come along and supported what the Bible has said all along. And then the um, archaeological discovery, which thrills all of us beyond belief, was, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Absolutely. The Dead Sea Scrolls is one of the most important things that we have when talking about the reliability of Scripture. Um, For those that don't know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were named after the location where they were found, the Dead Sea. And there was a community called the Qumran community. And they had a number of scrolls that were discovered in this cave that survived a long, long time. And the reason that this matters is because among those documents, there was a copy, there was copies of biblical books. We're talking about Old Testament biblical books. And one of the most important was that of the book of Isaiah. And the reason that was important is because the copy that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls was about a thousand years earlier than any other previous copy that was known. They compared those two copies of the book of Isaiah, and they found them almost identical in every way. I know. I think when they compared the copies, I think there uh, were—I mean, the corruption rate was like point. 0002 or something. There were like maybe uh, eight to ten different discrepancies. It was like a capitalization or a punctuation mark. But as far as the words and the and the delivery, it was absolutely precise. Absolutely, and and even something like that's what you would expect to find if you uh, had a document or uh, something that was in English separated by a hundred years or something like that you would expect differences in spelling. And that's the type of thing that they found when comparing these two copies of Isaiah, which, again, were separated by a 1,000 years. The, the Qumran or the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, showed a copy that was older by a 1,000 years. And, for example, they looked at Isaiah 53. It only had 17 letters that were different from the later text. Mm. Ten of those were differences in spelling, right. like you just pointed out. And the others had no impact on the meaning at all. Four were very minor differences, talking about kind of like the differences between having a a conjunction of cannot and can't. Right. That's not a real example in the the Hebrew text, obviously. 
but that's the type of difference that was there. There's nothing that would affect the meaning in any way. Yeah, Clay, I want to take a little break. When I come back, I want to keep on the Dead Sea Scrolls because it's just so interesting. Clay Craby is my guest. He's written uh, um, a blog, a website called reasonabletheology.org. We're going to take a little break and be right back. the show. My guest is Clay Craby. Uh, he's a pastor in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and he also has uh, put together a wonderful website called reasonabletheology.org, and we're chatting today about the reliability of the Bible, and every Christian, every Bible student should go on an in-depth look at how well Scripture has been preserved, because it will give you confidence, and it will equip you when you are having uh, conversations with people about faith and about uh, uh, the Word of God. So, um, we go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was a shepherd that uh, threw a rock into a cavern and heard some clay breaking, and what a discovery that was. Uh, an amazing, amazing discovery. One of the greatest in archaeological finds of all time, isn't it? It, it is, and it really is an amazing story. It's, it's 1947, and a young Bedouin goat herder is looking for some sheep, He's in the, the Valley of the Dead Sea, and there's mm-hmm. caves all over. You're not going to be able to check them all. So a pretty you know ingenuity going on here. He just starts chucking rocks into different caves to see if he can flush out this sheep. And as you mentioned, he hears some pots breaking, goes in, and discovers something that's been there all for hundreds, thousands of years at this point, just sitting waiting to be discovered. And it's one of the greatest discoveries in all of not only biblical archaeology, but also textual studies as well. Mm-hmm. And when you look at great works of antiquity, great uh, pieces of literature in antiquity, and you look at uh, the Iliad, where I want to jump back to that because there's about 600 copies. If you look at the number of copies of the Old Testament, that is right around 250,000, isn't it? Yeah, and it depends on how you count them. Uh, if you count things like um, later copies, like Latin ones, mm-hmm. that would have been you know Middle Ages and beyond. The the number is just mind boggling. When you're talking about uh, copies in the original language, you're talking about maybe like six thousand Greek New Testament copy manuscripts have been discovered, and those would date uh, you know as early as the second century A.D., about 130 uh, A.D. Mm-hmm. And Clay, can you talk about the, the discipline of being a person who made copies? If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all-new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. Yes, we know a lot about how people... You know, when, when the Bible talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, well, when it's talking about the scribes, it's talking about people who 
in large part were tasked with the precise transmission of documents. They would be used for government purposes, but also there were scribes that were for religious purposes, particularly in connection with the worship at the temple and, and the things that the priests would do. So this is a culture that has down to an exact science, the transmission of written documents. And they would only use certain types of materials. They would you know, sharpen their uh, writing utensils in certain ways. The ink had to be black. It was a special recipe of ink. They had to say the words aloud uh, as they were writing. Um, when in the case of, of Hebrew scribes, their alphabet is numeric as well, so they're able to count up those lines and make sure that they get the exact middle letter of the exact middle of the document, of the exact middle of the line. They have all these safeguards in place for making sure that the document is transmitted exactly as it was. And if they found a mistake, the whole thing went in the trash. Mm -hmm. Well, that was kind of the, the heritage that the early church had as well. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that they followed all the same you know, religious aspects of an Old Testament scribe or a, a, someone in the in the you know the temple period. However, the the importance of the task was well known, and they had safeguards to make sure things were well preserved. And now, looking back in hindsight, comparing those different manuscripts, we can see they did a phenomenal job of it. Mm -hmm. And Clay, I'd love for you to talk about the the timeliness of the writing of the New Testament versus some of the older um, uh, pieces of literature in antiquity, uh, because the New Testament was written shortly after the events occurred. Yeah, and that is so important because, again, when you've got this overwhelming manuscript evidence, it can be tempting uh, for the skeptic or the critical person to say, okay, great, it, it well-preserved something that was made up. But that's where we have even more evidence to keep in mind is the New Testament was written shortly after the events that are recorded in it. You think about the events of the Gospels. You think of Paul's missionary journeys. You think of the book of Acts. All these things were written shortly after they occurred. The At the very latest, the four Gospels were written between 40 and 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. And that might seem like a lot, but it's not in in relation to ancient documents, to have copies in existence that close to the time period or to, to have manuscript evidence that reveals that it was taking place in that close a time period is phenomenal. Uh, the oldest manuscript that we have is, again, about from the second century, but other evidence that we have in studying these things point that there was this 40 to 60 year gap between Jesus' resurrection and the four Gospels being written, probably at the latest. And we know because of the, the text themselves that many of Paul's letters were written before the Gospels were actually recorded. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about um, the timeliness of when this was written, and uh, if I were to write a comprehensive book on the history of New York City 25 years from now, let's say I can live that long, and 25 years from now I write a comprehensive history of New York City, and I leave out the 9-11 attack. How long would that book make it before everyone would say, put it in the garbage? Exactly. And, and the fact is, when we have things like uh, in the book of Acts, for example, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is still alive and the temple is not destroyed yet. Mm -hmm. 
And yet, over and over, if you're just scanning, you know, those little headings on the different chapters and, and paragraphs in your Bible, you're going to see Temple and Paul and all these things over and over again. And yet, the author, Luke, doesn't include those very important details. And so we conclude what? Well, Acts was written prior to these events taking place. And that also gives us that time period. And now you start backing up. If Acts was written prior to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, and Luke was the first of a two-part work of Luke-Acts, he was written before that, and then you start backing up Paul's writings and the epistles to the churches, you're getting to biblical books being written 15 to 20 years after the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. When you think of studying this, and I think everyone should do it, and I I would guess you would agree with me, Clay, is to get the accurate depictions of the historical events. And it it will build your confidence, and it will excite you about uh, God's Word even more so, won't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think to to just recognize what God has done throughout history to preserve His Word, I think is encouraging for us as believers in, in moments where we are maybe in seasons uh, of doubt or confusion, or we we read some critical book, or we hear a skeptic say something that, that causes us angst, not only can it comfort us then, but just to see the loving care that God has taken to make sure that we have His Word. And of course, later in history, when we see what He has done throughout history to make sure that we have it available in our own language, just mm-hmm. wonderful things that can encourage the believer in their faith. Yeah, Clay, have you had uh, discussions with people about their faith, and you've been able to use some of this information, and, and did you watch their eyes kind of light up when you did? One thing that you'll you'll sometimes see is if you have a conversation and someone brings up some points, for example, uh, well, the Bible was written hundreds of years after the event, so you can't trust them. If you point that out, a lot of times they just ping pong to the sure. next thing and the next thing and the next thing. However, if you're talking with someone that sincerely has questions and you're having a good conversation, introducing these things can really help resolve some of the misconceptions that people have. Or maybe someone who's just new in their faith and they're and they're trying to grow in their relationship with the Lord. This is a, a great exercise to go through, and it absolutely builds your confidence um, and, and gives you some great insight to the God that authored the book, uh, took the same detail to preserve it. Absolutely. And, and just knowing, it, it may seem, uh, when you're just talking about numbers of manuscripts and dates, that might seem academic. But when you start to go beyond that and start to reason that out, okay, okay, if this was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus walked, that means that when they wrote this, there were people alive who knew whether or not it was true. Right. And, and, and that starts the wheels turning of, okay, this is a religion, a faith that is grounded in history, that is grounded in in verifiable truth. Uh, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name, but someone often points out that Christianity is the most falsifiable religion there is, because it's constantly naming names and dates and places and stating these facts. And yet over and over again, we find that all of those are verified through history, either through uh, literary study or archaeology or whatever else. Yeah. Well, that that confirms, you know, my lame illustration about, you know, 25 years from now writing a book on the history of New York. There are there would still be people alive that would go, wait a minute, you can't call this the complete history of New York if you don't include the 9-11 attack. Absolutely. And once you start 
to get that information, the wheels continue to turn. You say, okay, if people are still alive, that means very little time has passed. And we know that legend does not replace fact that quickly. Maybe 2,000 years from now, you could have a book on New York and say, you know, um, you could have a different explanation for the changing of the sky line after 9-11. Right. And it could be way out there. It could involve aliens or whatever else. (laughs) But because so much time has passed, legend can replace fact. When you're talking 15, 20, 30 years, legend can't replace fact because there's people there that saw it. Uh, Not only uh, hostile witnesses who would love to kill you for spreading those things. You think of the the Jewish authorities or the Romans and those that are um, sensitive and promote those things are also in a position where doing so brought them nothing but pain and terrible death. Mm-hmm. So this this isn't a matter of, yes, the documents are well-preserved, but they're, they're a well-preserved myth. No, they're well-preserved, and they point to the facts that they record. Yeah. Clay, thank you so much for your work on reasonabletheology.org. It's a great website, and I encourage all the listeners to head over to reasonabletheology.org and check it out. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate being able to talk about this. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.